Hello, and welcome to the 23rd episode of the Ocean Decade Show, a podcast dedicated to guiding you down the yellow brick road of this global initiative to transform the ocean, housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network family. My name is Taylor Gales, and I'm your host and tour guide on our adventure through the ocean decade. So we're now almost two years into the decade, and this year finally saw some in-person meetings related to the Ocean Decade, which is really exciting. And I can't really believe all the progress that's happened and how much the decade has grown as a, as a concept, you know, matured in its organization, but also in everything that it's kind of sprouted around the world and the way that we're thinking about the ocean during these 10 years in this really short amount of time. And because the decade has grown into this massive endeavor, um, it's funny because when I started, it was just this wee little idea, and now I, I couldn't even describe to you all the bits and bobs and far end reaches of the decade, but it's this incredible massive endeavor that's taken on a life, life of its own, which is just what it was supposed to do. But I wanted to take the chance <clears throat> in this episode to go back to the basics and one of the key pieces of the overall Ocean Decade organization that is still really central to the way that the Ocean Decade can can succeed. So one of the key elements in the Ocean Decade implementation plan, which if you go back <laughs> probably 20 or so episodes ago of this show, you'll learn more about what that implementation plan was, which is you know the guiding document for the decade, are the idea of these national decade committees. And that's what they're, they're called in the document. I've mentioned before on the show that the decade is trying to be both bottom up and top down. And these committees are meant to be those sweet spots in the middle of that <laughs> that line, helping to share information from the UN and the IOC, the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, to stakeholders working on the decade on the ground in each country, and as a way to filter up great initiatives and ideas that deserve international attention from each country. So the IOC, through their international coordinating unit terms, uh, the Global Stakeholder Forum will attempt to connect all of these national committees for ease of information sharing, exchange, cooperation. You can already log into this uh, global stakeholder forum. Uh, there's pages for lots of different initiatives. And that's like a committee of committees, <laughs> a meeting of meetings. So basically what you need to know is if the UN itself is too large of a thing for you or your organization to interact with, and that's the case for a lot of people. The UN is a big, scary, bureaucratic, uh, you wouldn't even know where to start in terms of trying to interact with them. These national committees for each country is a great way to start to learn more about the ocean decade and figure out how you want to fit into the decade. If you don't know of certain projects or priorities, what you're thinking of, then these committees can be great resources for, for individuals or for organizations. So a number of countries have already established national decade committees, including Brazil, France, Italy, the UK, uh, Germany, and the United States, and a number of countries are working currently to establish theirs. So whether they're newly formed or a bit more established, we're still early on in this decade. All the incredible things that have happened in the past few years, we're still very early on. So I encourage all of you listening to look into whether your country has a national committee and jump in and make an impact now in shaping how your country interacts with the Ocean Decade, and with other national committees all around the world. So all of these committees are different. They're meant to be different. The, there's no kind of prescriptive way to do them. Some are utilizing existing interagencies or standing bodies and sticking the label National Decade Committee. That's how the U.S. one is, has worked, uh, that the National Academies of Sciences houses the U.S.'s National Decade Committee, and some countries are trying to form entirely new groups expressly for this purpose. And if you've listened to past episodes of this show, you know, I've interviewed uh, two of uh, two Canals Fellows, which if you don't remember, it's a U U.S. Marine Science Policy Fellowship, which is where I got my start with the Ocean Decade. 
and mentioned the U.S. National Committee in both of those interviews, dug a little bit into what that committee looks like, but I've never covered another country's National Committee uh, until now. So my guest today, I actually know through my work on shipping decarbonization at the Aspen Institute. Uh, he had reached out to us, gosh, I don't even know because all the, the days and weeks run together, but to discuss how healthcare companies in the healthcare sector can get involved in our cargo owners for zero emission vessels initiative. And since meeting him, he's become one of my favorite people to interact with in my day job. So I'm really excited that when he mentioned that he was a member of the UK Ocean Decade National Committee, it was it was fate that I needed to get him on the show to talk about both his work on the Ocean Decade, but also this fascinating intersection between healthcare and the ocean that he focuses on through his work. So I'll let my guest introduce himself a little bit more, but uh, Dr. Richard, Richard Hickson, a critical care consultant, which is a, who is a co-founder of Healthcare Ocean, a network of motivated individuals from healthcare, marine science, environmental public health, commercial shipping, uh, and active living. And their aim is to conserve and protect coastal and marine ecosystems through minimizing harm resulting from the procurement and delivery of healthcare, while increasing the awareness of the benefits to human health and well-being from healthy seas, coasts, and waterways. So with, uh, like I said, with his healthcare ocean nexus expertise, Richard sits on the UK Ocean Decade National Committee. Hi, Richard. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. Hi, Taylor. Thanks very much for having me uh, on the show. So who are you and what's been your path to the Ocean Decade? Uh, it's a, it's gosh, that's a, 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 it's a, it's a frequently asked question that one, because um, it, it isn't particularly uh, uh, an obvious link. But as, as you've already mentioned, my background is critical care, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big user of stuff. I think that's uh, uh, fair to say. As we all are. Work. Yes, indeed. And uh, critical care, you know, it, uh, it's, uh, as far as hospitals go, it's one of the, uh, you know, biggest areas of consumption. Um, but up until about five years ago, I was doing the usual things. I was critical care consultant. I was deputy medical director in my trust. I was just kind of milling around doing the usual things that doctors do during their careers. And I just one day asked a, a question of uh, some senior leaders in my trust about sustainability plans. And it just seemed to be, well, their answer just induced some, some panic in me that we, we, we had work to do. So I, I quit all my jobs apart from my clinical job and um, I set up my trust sustainability group. And uh, following on from that, I just started reading everything I could. I had a bit of time on my hands, so I started reading everything I could about sustainability, catching up really uh, from the years that I'd spent focusing on clinical medicine. And one thing just became really apparent, and that was that oceans were missing. And this uh, just worried me. Um, it, it, it kind of it, it leapt out because I was always an amateur ocean enthusiast right from my very early days as a child. I remember- And you live in the UK, which is an island and so surrounded yeah, by the ocean. Absolutely. Surrounded by ocean. I live fairly close to the coast where I was growing up. And my favorite animal when I was a child, you know, we all have our favorite animals, don't we? So my favorite land animal was the southern white rhino. And my favorite marine animal was the Anxi River dolphin. And it was my favorite marine mammal because uh, I even at a young age of about seven years old I, I read that it was in danger and um, I kind of then for many years and decades forgot about it and when I started reading about sustainability I, I googled the Yangtze River Dolphin and it had become extinct in around 2006 and that was just a point in my life where I just thought my god you know this this is just 
things are happening and I'm just not aware of them. And this really kind of woke me up. So I, I then started focusing my sustainability work on oceans, raising my hand in every committee meeting I went to and said, what about water? What about the oceans? Why are we not talking about oceans from the perspective of uh, trajectory, harm, our impact and their potential for helping us find our way out of the mess that we're heading into? And uh, nobody seemed to get it, so or very few people seemed to get it. And so myself and a really good colleague, Georgie Soman, uh, set up Healthcare Ocean to give oceans a voice in, in human healthcare strategy. I, even though I've heard Richard tell this story before, I think it's so impactful every single time because it's really just your stories, like a lot of others, I think, Richard, w- when you're finding these interconnections is that you just raise your hand and you keep <laughs> you keep asking and you keep trying to figure that out. And then it turns into this fantastic organization, Health Corrosion. So can you tell us a little bit more about the origins of that? I gave a little bit of the kind of spiel from your website about what you do, but you know, what's the heart of that organization? Give me the story of the last few years of that. Um, well, it's it's literally, oh gosh, uh, probably about two years and one week old. Uh, healthcare ocean. Well, happy um, anniversary then. That's fabulous. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're just over two years old. And we, what happened was we we didn't know what to do. But Georgie and I, we sat there. We had a few meetings, and we we said, you know, okay, we've got, we 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 know that oceans have to be central to all conversations when we're talking about climate change. We must be talking about nature, and we can't just as a land based species talk about land based nature or you know uh, things that fly, the things that we see every day. We have to bring this 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 oceanic. Um, uh, section of the biosphere into, into everyday everyday conversation when we're talking about sustainability. So we're wrapping our brains and we we're just reaching out to everybody um, and trying to explain. And uh, most people were kind of, they just weren't there. They just didn't get it. But we also didn't have our narrative. We didn't have our ethos. We didn't have our why. We, we were just kind of, we just knew something was wrong. So um, we were really lucky that after several kind of uh, blind alleys, we were introduced to a lady called Laura Fleming, who is a uh, professor at the University of Exeter, uh, amazing academic background, and the director of the European Centre for Environmental and Human Health. And we had a meeting with her, I think it was the 20th of October 2020, in the midst of COVID. And you can imagine what critical care was like at that point. It was... uh, it was no picnic. Um, so we found a bit of time and we met with Laura and Laura just literally came on a call uh, with Georgie and I and said, oh my God, where have you two been for the last couple of decades? And what she was basically saying was, you know, the, the academia was developing in the area of oceanic health, especially in this area of uh, the health and well-being benefits to humans of, of healthy blue spaces. Um, but also the fact that she had been one of few voices Uh, speaking about this and suddenly she had these coalface clinicians reaching out and saying we think there is a link between oceanic health human health and healthcare and we're trying to figure out what that is can you help us and she said yes and we still talk on a pretty much you know twice a month basis and we work very closely together and Laura became the third member of of healthcare ocean so when when we kind of got Laura on board, we then kind of we we developed organically for about a year, uh, trying to figure out what we were doing, where the hotspots were, and I, I think it's safe to say we've kind of settled on we've settled on the big things. So container shipping, 
because we bring in 80% of our NHS goods on big container ships. As you say, we're an island nation, and these container ships have impacts on the ocean, not just in their CO2 emissions, but the noise, the marine mammal collisions, the uh, ballast tank discharges, etc. So we started to understand that and started to see a link between our 80,000 suppliers bringing in goods into the NHS on big ships that were causing harm to the ecosystem, which therefore had this knock-on effect of causing harm to humans, which then obviously fueled the need for more healthcare. And along with the big ships, we then kind of under the big stuff kind of umbrella, we, we brought in whales as well. So obviously whales as a W-H-A-L-E-S, not the country. Uh, so the, the cetaceans. I forgot that that is something that you have to clarify on a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We were still very much embedded because the the NHS in, in in the UK is slightly fragmented. Uh, obviously, England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. So I have to be careful how I describe the relationships. Um, but we, we started thinking about whales, you know, whale strike and uh, marine mammal collisions and underwater radiated noise. And and we, we started learning about, you know, how whales were these amazing ecosystem engineers that, you know, were fertilizing the photic zone and this was kind of mind blowing. So we, we in in the kind of the big area, oh, sorry, the, the 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 big end of the spectrum. You know, whales fitted in very well. We then realised we had this kind of section that we called uh, molecular pollution or chemical contamination. And that was the kind of microscopic end of the spectrum, the microplastics, the forever chemicals, the pharmaceuticals, their metabolites, um, all these things that we generate through healthcare that get into our rivers, our oceans, and then poison the microscopic world that then obviously has this, this kind of uh, impact as it goes up through the trophic layers. And the, we then had this area, which was very much the, the community primary end, end of the, the spectrum, which was how do we, how do we utilize a healthier ecosystem, ocean, uh, coasts and inland waterways to improve the health and well-being of the population and decrease their need to tap into secondary care with all the baggage that that entails for the environment. Yeah, that's a lot to do for one organization, but you've really defined kind of <laughs> your role in this space. And the you've hinted at this a little bit through your introductions, but just kind of back to the basic, why, like, why does healthcare impact the ocean so much? What is that critical linkage between health, human health, healthcare, and the ocean? Well, as I say, I mean, healthcare is a, you know, it's a, it's a huge polluter. Um, it's a huge polluter in terms of CO2, which is the, uh, the pollutant that we tend to focus on. But it produces the, the, I think the English NHS, I think it's English rather than the whole Four Nations, produces about 660,000 tonnes of waste every year. A lot of that is plastics. A lot of that we see, we sort, we segregate, and then most of it goes up in smoke. Most of it gets incinerated. Um, but what we don't see and what we don't think of is the vast amounts of what goes down the sinks and toilets, both in secondary care and in communities, all the pharmaceuticals, the metabolites, and they are not being completely removed uh, by our water treatment, so they find their way to the oceans. And this impacts upon oceanic health. And then it just kind of comes back to bite us because as the, obviously, as the oceans 
uh, are stressed and as they warm through climate change, you know, we get all sorts of, of impacts, whether it be the big kind of macro impacts, such as the, the uh, adverse weather effects and rising sea levels, or, or the, the impacts through harmful algae blooms on the coast and vibrio species, shellfish poisoning, all these sorts of things that can damage humans directly. So, as oceans become increasingly impact, and I'm trying to stay clear of using the term die, even though, you know, <laughs> that it, it's kind of what I want to say, you know, it's kind of as the as the oceans go, kind of move along this pathway to uh, a, a very bad place, um, which, you know, with some organizations, you know, we're, we're predicting this to be in the next 20 to 30 years, you know, it's it's much sooner than we, 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 we perhaps hit some of these temperature tipping points. Um, um, and that it just comes back to bite us. It, it causes humans to be unhealthy and therefore it increases our need to provide health care, which increases our need to procure more equipment. So we have more ships delivering our equipment. We use more drugs. We use more equipment. We poison the oceans. We're just in a positive feedback loop. And this will just continue until one of two things happen. Either we make the world, and I use that in the broadest sense, we make nature healthier um, or the natural systems healthier or human health care breaks. And, you know, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, you know, I worked a critical care unit during COVID. And this, again, was very much a catalyst to healthcare ocean. Um, I saw one virus bring healthcare to its knees. And what is an unhealthy ocean and climate change going to do? It is going to break healthcare. We are not going to be able to provide healthcare in the way that we have got used to. And it is going to lead to some very, very serious decisions that will need to be made on the way to some very, very dark places. And that's what we're trying to stop doing, <laughs> you know, through through the work you're doing. And I think that it's so fantastic that you've been selected that you're part of, you know, the UK Ocean Decade National Committee. So how did that happen? Because as far as you and I know, and we we talked about this before, that I don't know if there's any other, you know, kind of healthcare perspective on any of the other existing national committees. So how did this come about that you got involved with the national committee? Yeah, again, this was a very organic development, Taylor. Um, uh, we made a lot of noise in 2021. So we, we hit the ground running in 2021 and started presenting to anyone who would listen. So Georgie, Laura and I, we would do presentations, whether it be to medical students or, or whoever. We, we just didn't mind. We just thought we've got to have something to talk about to start educating. And Laura had this bright idea to um, uh, for us to hold a conference. So um, we did. In September 2021, we had a virtual conference for which was the official launch of Healthcare Ocean. And we were really lucky that we got some, because Laura has this amazing kind of global presence, we got some really great speakers to open, to close and to interview during the day. Uh, and our panellists were really, really high calibre. And I think it opened people's eyes because Laura had this amazing pulling power. And suddenly people were thinking, my God, you know, healthcare ocean, this message is really important. Um, they, they joined in and the day was closed or the afternoon was closed by a guy called Mike DePledge. And Mike has been active in the area of oceanic human, human health for many decades. And he was aware of the, the, the National Decade Committee. And uh, he just basically, when approached, said, look, there's a healthcare professional. He's very passionate about oceanic and human health. I think he'd be a, an asset. And so I had to throw my hat in the ring and, you know, write my application and the invite came. So I was absolutely delighted. 
That is really fantastic. The the kind of organic nature of that, and that highlights kind of the difference between, um, and because the like I said at the beginning, the one I know best is the U.S. National Committee, which uh, has just been set up. It's set up in the National Academies of Sciences. There's an existing Ocean Studies Board that now serves the role of the National Committee in addition to all the great other great ocean science work they do. So the UK National Committee had an application and it was kind of built organically like this. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. Just the kind of differences in how that <laughs> how that started and they're all successful yeah. in their different ways. Yeah, definitely. And we we we've, we've literally just started down this path, Taylor. So we've had one virtual meeting, one face-to-face meeting. Uh, you know, you could sense the energy. It was amazing energy there and a real diverse range of individuals. Um, and you know, the conversation through both the uh, global stakeholder forum and, you know, through uh, email, uh, you just get this this amazing sense of engagement, which is fantastic. But uh, be very interested to know if there's any other healthcare professionals on any other decade committee because you know obviously you know we're, we're all pursuing sustainability for perhaps different reasons but many people are pursuing it because what they what they want is healthy planet so that they and their children can remain healthy and you know live long and happy lives and uh, that to me is a very critical link through to to human healthcare Exactly. So yeah, if you're listening and you happen to know if there's any other critical health care consultants or healthcare consultants or anyone thinking about this human health connection on your national decade committee, please reach out and we'll, I'll get you in contact with Richard um, so that we can kind of build this global network. But so you've had the first in-person meeting of the UK uh, committee. How did that go? What was that? What was that like? Well, it, it was great. I mean, it was, um, we, we'd had, you know, a, a brief introduction online uh, a few months back um, and suddenly to get together and in, you know, we we're in Whitehall in London, part of the, the government premises. So it was all very different for me, you know, it's very much out of my comfort zone and my uh, natural environment. But uh, it was it was such a diverse range of young ocean professionals and individuals working with the Marine Conservation Society, marine biologists, archaeologists, researchers, lecturers in law. You know, suddenly we had this incredible group, all with very different thought processes with respects to what the decade could look like. And um, we had a very productive couple of days. And I think we all came away from it feeling really positive, like we've because one one of the and I'm sure you found the same, and this is why you know I love Aspen and Kozev so much. Um, is that it's you know we we have a lot of ideas, we're innovating in the space, and it's how to turn these ideas, these innovations, these Im- immense amounts of energy in, into an action that will make a difference. And you know that's the bit that I'm really excited about, and that's the bit with the National Decade Committee that I hope that we can. We, we've got a forum to drive forward actions on a level that, you know, a couple of years ago, I could have only dreamt uh, working at. Yeah, that is when when you think about where you've come in such a short amount of time to and having, you know, healthcare concerns now or at what I would say is one of the, you know, preeminent committees that's been established um, in the UK on ocean issues, you know, and that it, you have that way to speak up to the overall uh, ocean decade on a global level, the IOC, and then, uh, you know, in the UK itself and figuring out how this interconnects, how this works, how you can speak to the other individuals on the committee who are 
you know, in these different fields. And you said that there were early career ocean professionals, which is fantastic. That's That's been something I've been really passionate about too, is making sure that early career individuals get involved with the national committees. Um, so it's good to hear that the UK one has that as well. Yeah, definitely. These individuals, they're, they're just so inspiring what they've achieved in uh, such a, a short space of time. You know, as you get older, you move a bit slower, but these these people are just absolute bundles of energy that uh, are just, yeah, they'll, they'll carry us slightly older ones along, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I know that the US National Committee is recruiting for its next, uh, they, they do the early career ocean professionals in two-year stints um that get involved so they're recruiting for the next set i know right now um and so that's that's really encouraging to hear and i'd love to see how other national committees are are including them as well because having this diverse you know perspectives of specialties is important but also in terms of you know ages and just to be able to have that institutional knowledge but with the kind of vigor i think that (laughs) helps move us all forward even when i've reviewed like early career, you know, I, I'm still fairly early in my career, but when I even look at people younger than me, it's like, wow, how did I get hired anywhere? All these people are so impressive that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, I know. I know what you mean. I still feel like an imposter in most of these areas because, you know, for me, I've, I've been, you know, if we take the lifespan of healthcare ocean, it's just two years old. You know, I'm, I'm 53 years old and been a doctor for 30 of those years. So uh, it's a very different direction for me. So I, I definitely feel like the imposter. Was that a hard, I don't know if I've ever asked you this question before, but was it a hard shift to, you know, go from giving up all of your, you know, you said that you kind of gave up everything else except focusing on the sustainability stuff. Was that, how did that feel? Was that a hard shift after being, you know, a doctor for so much of your life and having kind of the same routines and that same focus? Um, it, it, to, to be honest, Taylor, it's surprisingly easy because what happened was over those over those five years between um, kind of waking up um, to to this the severity of the situation and and, th- and looking outside of my organisation because medicine is is it's it, it can be very inward looking you know you can you can hide behind a lot of things in medicine you can say it doesn't matter if I produce waste and waste and pollution uh, it doesn't matter if I just give this a go because it's all in the patient's best interest but you know we we've all had this first do no harm and really focusing on on the patient in front of you but actually when you start thinking about what your supply chains and your pollution is doing to people you've never met actually it starts to become really uncomfortable uh, you may not be doing harm to the person in front of you but you, you may well be doing harm to ecosystems and people all around the planet so i had this real kind of inner anxiety with medicine developing and i was i became very thinly spread in the first few years to to literally to break point working locally regionally nationally pulled into NHS England committees, trusted at the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare, working across my region with councils. And it was all on, it was on land, it was on air, it was on water, it was on everything. And so I kind of earlier in 2022 made a decision to, to go oceans, to go, you know, to focus in on this area because healthcare ocean was growing as an entity. We were finding our voice. We were gaining clarity of our purpose. We had our why sorted. We could explain why we existed and why we needed to be uh, to, to be recognized and to give oceans this voice. So I kind of decided to leave the land and the atmosphere alone and to focus on oceans. But to do that, I had to go not only drop my non-clinical work, I had to go part-time at work. So um, 
I uh, waited till my son finished university. Uh, he's actually a marine biologist, so uh, that's quite exciting. Oh, um, that's funny. <laughs> I know, I know. I, and I, I do not live vicariously through him, but I'm very excited about the work that he does. Um, and um, so I... Uh, I waited till he finished university. Obviously, there's certain expenses with university. So once the expenses dropped, I dropped my my work time so that, you know, I remained, I had the same income. So I didn't get used to the extra money. I dropped my work hours. And so when that freed me up some time to start working more in the oceanic area. And, you know, my intention when my daughter finishes university will do the same thing. And I'll just free myself up time because... At the moment, this is all, you know, this is, um, it's, it's, it's pro bono work, which is absolutely fine. I absolutely, you know, it's my absolute passion now to link human healthcare in the ocean. Um, and all I need to, to do it is to free up enough time so that um, I, can, I can sustain this personally in the longer term uh, as we build healthcare ocean. Yeah, I definitely understand the feeling of passion projects. That's what I do with, with this podcast is that it's, it's something that I started when the ocean decade first started and I don't, you know, get funding to do it, but it's so important to be able, I think, to tell these different stories and to provide a voice to individuals working on issues related to the ocean decade all around the world and voices of people who they, people would have never heard of before and able to like dig deep into certain issues. And it's been, it's, it's a fun kind of thing that especially during because I've only done this during COVID because the ocean decade has only existed during COVID which is a slightly horrifying thing to think about and so you know I've been able to talk to people I've realized uh, on every continent except uh, Antarctica so that's that's a goal next year maybe interview someone down at uh, Palmer Station but um, what a way to you know connect with people all over the world and I think that's what you're doing too with the the healthcare ocean work. Yeah, and it's absolutely right, uh, uh, Taylor. It's, I mean, to, to be able to speak on this podcast and what you're doing is, is absolutely fantastic. And and just to kind of reciprocate, you know, you you said that since we met, you know, you, you you look forward to our conversations. But you know, if you could actually say to me, you know, what is the highlight of 2022 for you so far? It was that first sign up to COZEV that we managed to bring together through Healthcare Ocean. You know, something that didn't exist between human healthcare suppliers and COZEV and the Aspen Institute suddenly existed. And for me, that was an absolute seismic moment. It actually, you know, suddenly I, I thought, my God, we do have a reason to exist. Um, and we have, we're doing things, we're actually, we're, we're, we're starting to make progress. And that, you know, there's, there's no money in the world that buys that feeling. It's, uh, and, and if I have to, you know, do this uh, uh, in this way forever, well, that I've got absolutely no problem with that. Yeah. And so for everyone listening, we, it was really fantastic. So our Cargo Owners for Zero Emission Vessels, COZEV initiative, where we have big companies, cargo owners from all over the world who, um, have signed uh, what we call our 2040 ambition statement, where they aim to only use uh, ocean shipping services powered by zero carbon fuels by 2040, which is huge if you know anything about the shipping world, because the fuels and technologies and infrastructure in order to achieve that ambition don't yet exist. Um, So it's really companies taking a leap of faith with us and showing their leadership and showing that they really want to make this transition work and be part of the transition. And so we announced um, new signatories this week, at, not this week, this year at New York Climate Week. And one of them was Philips Healthcare, which Richard helped get us in contact with. It was our first big um, healthcare signatory. It's it's huge. It's opened up a whole new 
world of uh, companies available to us that we didn't even uh, we didn't realize, Richard, before we started talking to you, how much you know healthcare ships. But it makes sense when you think about it. All the little things that you need in a medical office or in surgery that that all has to come from somewhere. Um, so I think that yeah, the world is our oyster in terms of going bigger and better with that going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I hope Philips will be the first of, of many of our larger and smaller um, suppliers to, to to the NHS because it's just – it's such an amazing story because, you know, when you start talking about ships and ship fuels and underwater radiating noise to companies that have never thought about it um, and whale strike and then you open their eyes and then it gives you that segue into talking about – you know, the potential that healthy oceans have. Um, and in fact, the absolute necessity for healthy oceans and for healthy natural systems to get us out of this crisis that we've made. Because, I, you know, however I look at land and tech-based solutions, I can find nothing that surpasses oceans in potential. And, you know, I will stand by that because no one yet has been able to, to prove that wrong. Um, and it doesn't take doesn't take an awful you know you 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 don't need to do complex maths I think to prove that no and for such a long time I think when the the thinking around climate change and the kind of the consensus around it has changed rapidly in the past I don't know five seven years something like that maybe even less um, and so for a long time the ocean world and ocean people kind of stayed out of the climate fight or the climate kind of discussion because it was controversial and people were still questioning if it was happening or whatever, which is crazy to think about um, in any way or sense of form. But the ocean people, you know, the ocean community, including within the ocean decade over the past few years have started to really embrace that ocean climate nexus and the ocean as our best ally and solution for climate change, but also something we have to protect. It's this kind of weird dual role that I think of the ocean in terms of with, with climate change, that it can be our biggest hero, but then it's also the damsel that we have to, which is, I know, very sexist, but that we have to protect, <laughs> you know, do. Um, and so that ocean climate connection is growing even stronger. And I think that shipping is one of the best examples to demonstrate that ocean climate connection. And uh, we can only go onwards and upwards from here. And now that we've kind of tangled up ocean and climate, there's no going back that we have to think of them as interlinked. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more, Taylor. Yeah, but we're land animals. So it's, it, it makes sense why it took us a while to get there, that we focused on the land impacts of climate change. But um, the ocean is is there and uh, all around you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, you know, we, we are, you know, I, I made these very simple sink and toilet stickers, you know, that basically says the ocean starts here, you know, the Sink one says, you know, um, do not dispose of drugs. Simple, you know, because uh, we have we have a way of collecting used drugs uh, that results in them not going down sinks and toilets and things. So uh, this is a message that's that's really important, you know. And people have to understand that, you know, the way that we treat our macro waste, especially in hospitals, this is the the pathways that I've looked at. You know, everything pretty much goes through to incineration. When it's liquid waste, and we produce something like sixty times the mass of liquid waste than we do solid waste in hospitals. Um, but the bulk of that is, uh, the treatment for that is dilution and very passive treatments through the, the microbiome within the sewage treatment works. Um, and then, of course, you have to 
figure out what happens to the sludge that's left at the end. So um, there's there's an awful lot of downstream complexities that we're not looking at. Uh, but treatment or disposal, I should say, of liquid effluent in a hospital is pennies. And if we did start treating it, you know, and it did cost, then there would be a significant cost to the establishments. And, and I'm not saying that's not the reason that rocks not been lifted, but um, it's it's certainly a consideration that I'm going to have to keep in mind as I move forward. Yeah, def- I agree completely. And I, yeah, that's a weird image for me about the <laughs> liquid versus solid and thinking about the hospitals, but this early in the morning while we're recording, but we will... <laughs> <laughs> we'll jump past it and just know that it's yeah, that it's absolutely. a big issue. What's going back a little bit to your work with the your very initial work with the Ocean Decade National Committee? What are you looking forward to doing with this committee? You know, over the next six months, over the next year. Um, I think the the area that I'm really excited about, and this is something that I've been working on a lot, uh, as you could probably tell through Healthcare Ocean, is is stakeholder engagement. Um, I like joining the dots and I like explaining why the dots need to be joined uh, in order to succeed in public private sectors within the UK. And I'm sure this is pretty much the same in in, in many countries is that um, there is a degree of suspicion. So when we started working with Philips Healthcare, you know, one or two people came back to me and said, um, oh, you know, well, Philips just want to sell you stuff. And I'm just like, well, yes, but that's what everybody wants to do as a healthcare supplier. They want to sell us stuff. But if this supplier wants to sell us stuff, but sell us stuff in an environmentally uh, sound way, then actually, of course, I'm going to talk to them. So I love that kind of, you know, that, that completely transparent relationship that we can form between public and private sector. And so with the stakeholder engagement coming through the UN Ocean De- uh, UK Ocean Decade Committee, I'm really excited to see how we can use this voice of the committee and my voice from healthcare to explain very clearly to uh, our stakeholders and our industrial partners why we have to bring oceans into our thinking, why, you know, if you dispose of something down a sink, into a drain, into whatever, whether it's an industrial process, a hospital process, or something at home, that this, you know, the evidence seems to show that this is having an impact on the eco, the oceanic ecosystem. So that's the bit that I'm really excited about. That's, yeah, that's the most important part, I think, too, in, in my view, and other people will disagree, but, you know, taking the work that the committees do and bringing it to people and then from what people say and bringing it back to the committee, that it can be this kind of nexus between the international and the local and, you know, help people understand those connections and that's what we all need to you know move all these issues forward yeah absolutely and we've we've got to get over this kind of us and them um approach because and and i've borrowed this line but i've used it repeatedly since uh i heard it if you find a good Um, line you got to keep using it Oh, definitely. This is uh, Steve Steve Hoare from the ABPI, the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industries. And he said at a meeting down in London, um, we all cross the line together or none of us cross it at all. And that for me was just the best line. It's exactly how I felt uh, in the way that I was trying to approach our suppliers working, say, 
again, example with Philips Healthcare, to introduce them to the Aspen Institute and COSEV. You know, so that is uh, me explaining to you, to you guys why I think human healthcare as a voice was so important, me explaining to Philips why oceanic health was so important, and then you've got the link through the ships, the fuels, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. And yeah, what you were saying earlier that, you know, oh, they want to sell you something. Well, that's how the world works. <laughs> People sell each other things. Yeah, exactly. And if we can do it in a yeah. way that it's zero emissions, I'm all for it. I'll buy that. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And why wouldn't we? We need to reward these suppliers that actually, you know, have got the environment at their heart. And we do have um, a mechanism that is in trial at the moment within the NHS in order to recognize these suppliers who are going this extra mile and without um, uh, the, the weighting within contracts, the social value weighting, we will be able to um, to actually make it financially attractive for these suppliers um, to engage with environmental protection and improvements, which is exactly the right thing to do. Yeah, because one thing that you know I've learned is that you know I've worked in government before, working in a nonprofit now, but working with companies in the private sector, they were created to make money. That's what companies do. They don't, they weren't created to save the world. They have a huge power to do so. We just have to incentivize them on the way to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, when you, when you explain it to them and you, you say to them that, you know, number one, you're the suppliers of healthcare equipment or pharmaceuticals. So, you know, you are in the healthcare business. Um, but number one, healthcare, if healthcare breaks, then there won't be a call for the medicines that probably, you know, bring you in the profits. So from an economic perspective, you know, you want healthcare to not break. You want the world not to get to that point where it is utterly overwhelmed because, you know, we, you know, during COVID, the number of, you know, new medicines that perhaps were introduced into, into human healthcare was very limited. You know, it was, it was those, the priority was to obviously to, to minimize the impact of COVID. Um, but, you know, the, the market will become strained and therefore whether you care about human health and well-being or whether you care about business growth and economics, it works both ways. Exactly. I don't, I, I care about people's motivations, but as long as they do the right thing, I don't s super care. And that might be bad. And that might be just me speaking right now, but it's, yeah. Well, I, I'm, the, I'm the same, Taylor. And when I was, uh, you know, I was lucky to speak at COP26 and had a couple of um, slots in the blue zone. I had a couple of um, invites from the Malin Group uh, where it was with the shipping industry. And, uh, you know, I was talking to the shipping industry in this way, acknowledging the fact, you know, shipping, it's a force for good. It delivers goods and food and medicines around the world, you know, feeds billions and it creates economies around the world where there weren't any 80 years ago, you know, so we've got to see it as a force for good, but we, we, we can't bury our heads in the sand as to the negative impacts, but we can through this supply healthcare, from my point of view, sorry, the healthcare supplier provider carrier access, we, we can help each other. And therefore, we can improve human health, we can improve the sustainability of the businesses. And therefore, that's where the economics comes into play. So it doesn't have to be seen as a negative. This is just wide open as an opportunity. Exactly. Coming back broader again, speaking of the ocean decade overall, um, there was a nice positive note to end on. So as we wrap things up, you know, by the time we reach 2030, and looking back, what would be a a successful decade for you? What would have happened during these next few years or over the course of this decade that you could look back and say, 
this was a good effort. I, I'm glad that it happened. <laughs> wow, gosh, that's something I don't, uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't often allow myself the luxury to kind of dream ahead. If you know what I mean, it all seems. I know. So- that's why it's been. I ask this question to every single person on the show because I love getting all the different answers, and I love seeing, you know, how people's minds think, and some are very practical and some are very broad and it's the everything in between. Well, I always say, I mean, I live, I live about an hour from the coast. So I think if I was, you know, still living in this house, which I'm sure I will be, you know, what, what would be, what for me would be um, something that, that makes me realize that not just for oceans, but this is more kind of humanity in general is that the composition of the vehicles on the road by my house has changed. And I'm not just talking about electric vehicles because we 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 know very very well the evidence with respects to to tire and brake dust and storm drains and this becoming microplastic pollution in the oceans. But if the if you know the road by my house has got public transport that is sustainably powered that has different tire compounds that is is it there a safe place to be with lots of electric bikes um, as in push bikes and scooters. It's a quieter environment uh, because, you know, the means that we are powering people around the country uh, has changed. Then that, for me, will show me that humanity has actually embraced the fact that we can live a life in a different way um, and live that life sustainably. Because if that happens on the roads with everyday people going about their business, then I am absolutely sure we would have made amazing progress in the other areas such as uh, the oceans. So when it comes to my particular you know, area of interest or one of my areas of interest with the, with the ships is that what we're seeing is, is that COSEV, and I'm not just saying this because it, it's you, Taylor, but you know, COSEV has had <laughs> such an impact that you know, we're not seeing uh, the debate about heavy fuel oils versus, you know, e-methanol or e-ammonia. What we're seeing is we're saying, right, we've we've now leveraged that change uh, in these these container ships that are delivering all these amazing new vehicles, and these container ships are now running on um, uh, uh, more sustainable fuels, and we are on the way to, you know. Um, that holy grail of perhaps of e-hydrogen and fuel cells, that this is all part of this, you know, um, developing narrative that really, really kind of shows that we are changing the way that we consume, we deliver products and the the composition of those products we use. So, sorry, a very long answer, but in my head, it's kind of like... It's a beautiful picture you've painted. That's yeah. what I'm trying to, you know, and this is because I, I, you know, what does success look like? Success to me is a healthy planet. And, but I don't know how to define that yet because I wasn't alive 250 years ago before the industrial revolution. But, <laughs> you know, so I have to kind of like imagine it as what the planet is now, but in, in, in an evolutionary way, um, rather than doing what I really want to do is wave a wand, turn the planet back. 250 years and then try and reimagine the place of 8 billion humans in that ecosystem, which obviously I can't do. So sorry, not a, not a, not a very focused answer, but certainly one that. No, but that's not what we, (laughs) we need all the time. But yeah, it's funny to think about, we can't picture then. And then the idea you just, you know, talked about the reverse, asking someone then to picture a planet of 8 billion people. I don't think they could do that either. (laughs) I keep trying to picture it and it's really difficult. Yeah. So where can the audience go to learn more about, uh, the work that you do? 
Um, well, we do have a website. Uh, it is a very, very basic website, uh, despite it being up for probably a couple of years. Uh, and it's very basic because it's home built, because we're actually, as a, as a very small group, um, we are just so crazy busy uh, that we, we don't get to, uh, a lot of time to develop the resources. So um, we spend a lot of time, as I say, communicating, joining dots, creating networks and uh uh, driving change. So uh, the website is healthcareocean.org. On there, there is uh, obviously an email address. We have a Twitter ha- um, handle, uh, which is Oceans and Us. And we have a Facebook group called Healthcare Ocean. And what we say to everyone is visit the website where you can read a little bit more. Please follow us on Twitter because we do post things on there, not as frequently as we should. Um, the Healthcare Ocean Facebook group, again, we do post on there. That is a public group, but you have to join it. Um, and if you want me to specifically make a note of your name for when we are organized enough to actually bring other people in to help us, then contact (laughs) me directly. And I have a list of names that I keep with permission and email addresses. And as we become more organized, um, maybe if we ever, you know, receive funding so that we can devote more time to actually create, building the organization, then hopefully we will have jobs for people to do. And when by, by, by jobs, I mean tasks, you know, as in things that they can join in with. Thank you, Richard. I I loved this conversation. I love digging deeper into these connections that, like you said, we're all, I, you know, I'm so busy in my day job. And so this is a great opportunity to get to just chat and learn more about what you do and learn about this work a little bit more um, and connect it to the Ocean Decade, which I'm so passionate about. And uh, that you're, I'm so happy that you're becoming such a big part of the UK National Committee as well, and only onwards and upwards. And if anyone has extra funding lying around, throw it Richard's way because I can't think of a better group to, <laughs> to give funding to. Thanks, Taylor. That's so kind. Thank you. Well, thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next month. Bye.